again, everybody, and welcome to Talking to Change, a motivational interviewing podcast. My name is Glenn Hines, and I'm based in Derry, Northern Ireland. As always, I'm joined by my great friend, Sebastian Kaplan in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Hi, Seb. Hello, Glenn. Good to see you, man. And you. Hello, everybody. So today we were joined by Tamara Hamilton, a clinical social worker based at the Cliff Valley School at Atlanta, Georgia, where she shared her experience and practice in teaching around executive function and particularly integration of MI in that. So what did you take away from today's conversation, Seth? Well, I would say a couple of things. One, Tamara is somebody who I've known for several years now, and we've collaborated on a few trainings based at that school down in Atlanta. And we talked briefly about that in the episode, but it, it was really interesting and heartwarming experience to hear her talk about her life as a mom, a young person with autism, and how her early experiences parenting her son at a young age and the interactions that she had with educators who were trying to figure out how best to teach her son, how those experiences led to and informed her subsequent work in the area of helping young people around different executive function challenges and particular how MI fits in with all that. So that was interesting to hear both from a professional standpoint, but personally as well. I guess, you know, another thing that was always a wonderful reminder is the pitfalls of premature planning and how just in any field where you have a worker who's in conversation with another person who's considering change, that worker likely has some really wonderful ideas about how change could look. And Tamara offered a really cool example of this in some of the coaching work that she does with some strategies to help a young person around organization, time management, and these sorts of things, and how we can so easily forget the step of evoking the buy-in, in particular the change talk when we're thinking about MI, around whatever change, how that might look. So that was interesting to hear an example of that in the context of working with young people around executive functions. Yeah, we've got to really pay attention to that right and reflex when we're working with people who appear enthusiastic. And that mm-hmm. we, do, we don't just capture that enthusiasm and jump ahead. For me, one of the things that struck me was just the common ground that seems to exist and the understanding of how executive functioning challenges are being supported and the spirit and the skills of motivation viewing. And Tamara recognizes, references that quite a few times about how she has been able to integrate motivation very easily into the supporting of the young people, other colleagues and the parents and the conversations that she's having with them to support them to be different. But also, the as we understand, I guess as practitioners, if we specialize in the likes of alcohol or drugs or comfort eating or criminal behaviors, the more we understand those types of behaviors, it seems that the easier it becomes for us to be more patient and empathic with the clients that we're working with. But that then leads to more autonomy support and evocation. And Tamara's conversation today really invites us to recognize that perhaps some of these difficult, challenging, lazy, disorganized individuals are simply people who are having executive functional challenges. And the more we understand EF, the better we will be then to open that space up to be more meaningful helpers when we meet individuals who may be experiencing the EF challenges. Yeah, any opportunity to redefine or reframe something, a word like lazy, you know, which is commonplace and is used a lot to describe people and, and Tamara invites us to think of other ways to think about and better understand what otherwise might be called lazy as an example. Yeah, really wonderful stuff. So here's the episode. So 
Tamara, you're very welcome to the show. And we start each episode by asking our guests, tell us a bit about your journey in TMI. Thank you for asking. I started MI, I think, way back before it was something that a lot of clinicians were even talking about. I think my first exposure to it was back in early 2000s. And I had started working in a hospital setting and I was the only social services person in the hospital and helping do groups and different things. And we had a lot of, at the time, a lot of people being admitted to the hospital for co-occurring conditions, meaning that having both mental health issues and substance abuse issues. And I was first exposed to it at that time and then was trained when I went into my own practice in 2000 as a clinical social worker. I was working with adolescents that had substance use problems and took my first MI training at that time. And it was a game changer for me, especially in working with adolescents that were substance using and continued it from there. So it was pretty early on and then have discontinued to apply it throughout my life because for me, it wasn't even just about the work that I was doing. It was, it made sense in multiple areas. And because I've worked in so many different contexts. And so I've taken it with me from doing community-based social work, intensive outpatient work, which was a group for adolescents that were substance using that would meet three times a week, working on that issue and then working on now with kids and adolescents and young adults that are challenged with executive function skills. The idea of MI as a game changer uh, is something we hear a lot from our guests. And how is it a game changer for you? And maybe in particular in the context of working with teenagers? I think for me, when it was a game changer is it's that part of really the engagement piece. And I think that being able to as clinicians, we always talk about having empathy and being able to establish rapport and join with clients. But MI really gives you the approach to do that. And for me, it was the pathway to really, truly respect autonomy in the people that I was working with. Because in social work, we talk a lot about being client-centered or patient-centered or really having it focused strengths-based, individual-centered. And I think for me, that's MI was the way to do that because you would hear that I I was trained in that as a clinical social worker, but it didn't quite have any example for our path to do that other than being kind and having empathy. But MI gives you the skills to do that. It was almost that MI provided you with the vehicle to manifest the compassion, the understanding, the support and autonomy. That in itself then almost give you some boundaries with or give you structure within which to practice what it was you wanted to be, which was the most effective helper you could be. Exactly. And it's, I also think it's more strategic. It just gives you an opportunity to really, when you say it's not about you, it's about the person in the space. And it's, that's so true, but it's also strategic in helping that person be able in a way it's like, it's a path for change, but it's also their roadmap inside themselves. And that's what I appreciate the most about it. These concepts that resonated for you that seemed really important from a, even a philosophical standpoint, I imagine in the work that you were doing, it allowed you to do them, the actual, the action part of, of the work, I suppose. We're here today to talk about executive functions also and, and how MI 
can help inform our understanding of them, how MI informs work that you do that's focused around helping people with different presentations in their executive function. So maybe we can get talking about that a little bit and give our audience a quick, maybe broad overview of what does that mean, executive functions? Executive functions is a broad term, and I'm, I'm glad you said it that way, because depending on the author that you're reading, you get different descriptions. But really what everyone is speaking to would be our brain's capacity to direct us. It's the wiring, it's the multiple circuitry in our brains that, so I I always say it's to simplify, it's like the wiring between our thinking brain and our feeling brain. And it's the wiring between our neocortex and our subcortex that gets you into where you need to go. And so it's anything that gives us direction or helps us function well in our life. You hear it a lot described as it's the boss in your brain, but it's really not one thing. It's multiple connections that help us really do everything that we do. And so it's anything from working towards big goals or even just trying to manage your time throughout your day. And so it's things that you would consider like self-control, which would fall under response inhibition or time management, organization, attention and memory, task initiation, and I don't know if I mentioned goal-directed persistence. So having a goal, but but being able to see it through and being able to stick with something, cognitive flexibility, emotional regulation, huge, important parts of our lives that would be included in executive function skills. And depending on who you're reading, the different authors that are out there with it, you get those different terminologies around it. But there's some, we can all settle into the place where we know that these are the main circuitry in our brain that just helps us live, helps us do the things that we want to do. Mm. It's the impact or responses that we're having in our interactions with the world, whether it be people or events. And what was interesting was the way you described it there, was that wiring between the emotional and the cognitive brain. And I guess most people will recognize that, that sometimes we respond with an emotional response and sometimes it's about thinking and or vice versa. And we know that these two things are impacting on each other. And it sounds like what you're saying is depend on the wiring between those two points that can impact on our ability to, as you say, self-control or time manage or, or have goal-directed persistence. I wonder, can we go into a wee bit more detail about, you know, w- what does it look like? Uh, how would we begin to recognize what, if we go to one side of the scale, which is good, executive function, and then the other end, how might someone present if they're really, really struggling with executive function? That's a great question, because I think, especially for young people, you know, young people in school, and it really stands out because what we notice would be when people aren't producing, right? Because executive function skills kind of get in the way. If we're challenged by that, they get in the way of producing and you see it behaviorally. So you'll see, you know, with somebody scattered and not keeping their things organized with their materials, managing the materials well, or is this person just procrastinating a lot and they just don't seem to be able to start a task or they're not organized in the way that they start a task. So they not, might not know how to prioritize or plan effectively. It's interesting because what you'll you'll see is a lot of labels around these things. They're lazy, they're unmotivated, they're disorganized, they're scattered. You know, you hear that a lot or even just the apathy that people will put on someone who might be EF challenged is that oh, they just don't care about it. When it could just be, it's not that there isn't heart into it or they don't care. It's just 
they might not have the skill set to actually look at all of this information and be able to sort it out in a way where it's purposeful and meaningful and be able to do something with it. You think about working memory challenges for people, which also would be, so there are a couple of areas, like I like George McCloskey is a researcher in executive function skills, and I probably follow his work the most. And I like how he talks about certain executive functioning areas, such as like working memory or emotional regulation, because they can be great modifiers for a lot of other things. If our, if our ability to regulate emotions or have good emotional regulation skills is somewhat challenged, that could impact so many other things, right? So it could affect time management. It could affect task initiation. Um, it can affect even cognitive flexibility. If you're anxious and don't know what to do with that anxiety, you might tend to be a bit more rigid or a bit more locked into a certain idea and not know how to have the skills or the ability or the strategies to be able to move out of that space. So that would be some examples that I would think about. And what I'm going back to what I said with like young people, and it's not even even adults, like you think about adults that might have some EF challenges. We really value people with strong executive function skills. Like our, our worlds are, we applaud and award strong EF skills. And, and it's like people who are always on time, people who are highly organized, they set a goal and they just go and do it, you know, and forget that there's a whole skill set of things that are involved in that, that we can work with people to help them identify and learn. And that's the beauty in all of this is that we know that we can explicitly teach things that can help people, but it can also be big change for people. And that was where, for me and my world, where executive functions met up with MI. I think it'd be cool to hear more about that, even getting a bit deeper into the work that you do. You know, so you were sharing earlier as your origins as a clinical social worker in hospital settings and intensive outpatient programs, working with young people with mental health and substance use challenges. And now you're working in a school system. Tell us a bit about how that journey has kind of continued for you and how you are blending your MI knowledge and expertise with your growing understanding and expertise in executive function. It was interesting because when I joined, when I switched gears back in 2013 to join the educational world, I had not worked in education up, up to this point. I had done consulting work with schools and other things, but I was still very much in the clinical world. At first, I laugh and say every profession kind of speaks their own language, and I had to get acclimated to the academic or educational language that they used here because I was very clinical in the way I spoke. But what's interesting, as I've been here over the past 10 years, it's been a great marriage. And But the school that I'm in is very dedicated to integrating social and emotional work with academics. So it's it's a focus on both. So I've been able to bring a lot of my background into what I do here at Cliff Valley School. We started the Cliff Valley Institute, which is our branch of the school for professional development and parent education around five years ago. And, and that is where I really had the opportunity to bring in more of my clinical background with that. And when I think about how I've used MI, and I shared this with Sebastian because it was it's become somewhat of a mission of mine because 
as I've attended trainings and going to different workshops in education, different events, the approach is teaching is very much a top down type model. When I think about that, it's very much you have the teacher and the student and the teacher is going to give you information and the kid takes it and uses it and there you go. And they, the learning process occurs. At least that's a very simplistic way of describing it. But I've been able to really think about how, you know, we really, and at my school, we talk a lot about how it's connection over content. If you're not establishing that rapport or that engagement with that child, then the process of learning is going to be much harder. When I thought about that, I kept thinking, hey, this is MI. This is the beginning of MI. This is something where, this is where MI and education are starting to meet. And then when I read your book, and I was like, and then it was just like, I was so glad that you wrote motivation reviewing in schools because it was just, this is exactly what we were looking for. And at least what I was looking for. And it just makes total sense because, you know, we're asking kids, learning is changing. We're asking kids to go through a process of change. And so this is where we're starting to use more and more MI in school. And it's kind of a goal of mine now because this is still like school counselors when I talk with school, because I'm not a traditional school counselor, I'm a clinical social worker. But when I talk with other school counselors who have gone through traditional school counseling programs, not all programs are including training in MI. And to me, that's just kind of shocking. So through the Cliff Valley Institute, I've included a training, at least a, a two-day training to get people introduced to MI to get a basic understanding for starting these skills and to help school counselors and other professionals in schools start to get more exposure to MI because I know what it does for me and my practice and what it's doing for my school. My head of school participated last summer and wants to do a faculty-wide training on MI at this point. It's very interesting the way you describe school as change and just that idea of the experience of going through school is simply us supporting kids with them growing up. Because it's changed, then bringing in the theory of motivation interviewing or any other approaches that, that manages or, or understands change makes perfect sense. And so it sounds like it really resonated for you. It fitted perfectly for you seeing the world in that way and cliff valley institute is that is that right cliff valley institute so my school is cliff valley school in atlanta georgia and the institute is a branch of our school and that's the cliff valley institute because it sounds like what you're saying is that, that you've set that up a much more holistic way of supporting children learn which is to work with the teachers to work with practitioners and also very importantly to work with parents to know what it is we all can do to support these individuals to achieve their potential while they're with us and that evocation, that collaboration is all part of that and really reinforcing the connection over content, the relationship. Again, such a rich connection with the spirit of motivation. With that in mind, then, so how does that, how does that then work when we're exploring the issue of supporting kids with EF deficits or challenges? And how specifically is MI coming into those conversations? Again, I love these questions. How that all came about, even the work with executive functions here at Cliff Valley and what I put together for that, I, it actually came out of one of my professional development goals was to complete a program at Johns Hopkins called the Mind, Brain and Teaching Program. And it was a graduate certificate program on basically neuro learning. And it was 
What does that mean? Well, it's the combination of neuroscience, cognitive sciences, and the learning sciences and bringing those things together. Mariel Hardiman at Johns Hopkins, the director of the School of Education, speaks to her model is called brain targeted teaching. And prior to that, in education, there was a big buzz around brain-based learning, brain-based learning. You heard a lot about that. And and what I love about what Dr. Hardiman was saying is that all learning is brain-based. Everything is brain-based. And it's kind of a silly thing to continue to say that. It's not about it being brain-based. It's how is it? And what is the person experiencing? How does the student learn? Every kid has a brain and they're bringing that brain to the learning experience. So how is it that we can approach that? And for me, it was very personal because my youngest child is autistic. And when he started school, so this is going to go way back. And this is probably a very early story of where this resonated with me as a mom and then as a social worker and now an educator. Spencer was four years old, just starting school. And our very first parent-teacher conference, one of the very first ones that we had. And this was a wonderful teacher. My son Spencer was at the same school that my older two children attended in Indianapolis. It was an excellent school and we knew the faculty there. And this beautiful teacher looked at us and was crying and said, I don't know if he can learn. And as a parent to hear that about your child was just, it, it was just, it was just gripping. And then fast forward to the next year, it was wonderful woman. I'm going to, I have to credit her. Her name is Molly Murphy and um, she's at Park Tudor in Indianapolis, Park Tudor School. And Molly looked at me and said, I'm going to figure out how he learns. And that's MI in education. How, how are we going to get to this kiddo? How are we going to meet him where he's at? What can I do? Because his brain is different. And I want to know this child. And Mariel Hardiman would say that that's the very first step that you have in brain-targeted teaching. It's, in, it's setting an emotional climate and engaging a, a child. And so that is where, for me, it all started to come together. Because when I started hearing the, that the very first thing you need to do is engagement, and then I go back to my personal experience with my own child, and that, that someone who naturally just did this for my child and really jump-started my child into learning and then thinking back on that. So my personal experience and then my professional experience and then everything I was hearing from people who were experts in the field around how do you really engage a brain to get them to learn, it all started to go back to am I. And for me, am I gives people, it gives people the skills and the ability to actually do that engagement well and continue to respect the autonomy so that a person can really build on their own intrinsic motivation to keep that process going. That story you just shared as a mom to, you know, at the time, this really young person who's figuring out the world himself and encountering these teachers, even that first one that tearfully said to you, I'm not sure that he can learn. It made me think of how you described what MI brought to you, because I'm just assuming that those tears that she was shedding meant that she cared, that there was perhaps a desire or an interest in helping. Maybe the tears were basically saying, I don't know how to do it. And Exactly. 
maybe not even a lack of not that she didn't believe in Spencer or you, or she just didn't know how to do her job of, as an educator with someone like Spencer. And then the next teacher you met really had that desire and that interest and that connection, the compassionate part of it, but also maybe some of the, the skill work, both relationally, but also educationally to kind of make all that happen for him and for you. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the tears were definitely from a place of compassion and also from a place of not knowing what to do, you know, and just feeling that, you know, that feeling at a loss. It was almost like a moment of grief, you know, that I want to help your child. And as, and this was a educator who had been teaching for, you know, had a solid career as a teacher for and teaching for years. And I would say a master teacher. And then to have a child of someone that knowing us personally and caring for us as a family and then being at a loss, it was, it was really a, a challenging situation for everyone. And I think that when you think about so many families that face something like that, any child with some kind of learning issue is going to have executive function challenges. And so you have a lot of families that go through that. And if teachers aren't trained in a way to be able, and I think it's even also conversations. It's, so again, it's not, my role isn't just working with teachers. It's also working with parents. And so when I think about when I'm talking with parents about their children, talking about some pretty, like going back to my situation, go talking with parents so much needs to happen there in terms of compassion and empathy and engagement, because I might be talking with a parent who may need to do some more evaluations with your child to understand why is your child struggling in the classroom? What is happening with that? And that's huge. And it's, this would take a big step for parents thinking about how to engage parents to help them accept that their child needs more intervention to help them thrive. You know, that can be really hard. I always laugh and say, I remember the very first person who suggested that Spencer might have autism was a speech and language pathologist back when he was three years old. And I always joke and say, you know, I wanted to punch her in the face, you know? So I think about my own experience and I'm the, now the professional talking with parents. And I know what that feeling can be like when someone is giving you information about your child. So right there is another way that MI comes into my world with being able to help people go through that change process. And reflect on that story you told as a mom, what struck me was just how powerfully moving it was to hear Spencer's second teacher say that she was willing to recognize that the challenge she faced wasn't Spencer, it was her, that she had to work on how do I reach this kid because he's where he's at. And again, just how connected that is to the spirit of MI, but also how liberating it must have been for you to hear that and how liberating it must have been for Spencer to not be experiencing a sense of guilt or shame or fear that somehow there was something wrong with him, that what it was was the system needed to pivot to support him. And I guess it fits as well with your own experience and the experiences of many parents who are told that their children have a, a need of some sort, that initial sense of guilt or shame or blame that my kid isn't, inverted commas, perfect. And that this approach that the support that you're offering to parents now is supporting them not look through those filters to understand what this kid needs. It's just going, look, this is one of the things that is true about people. And there are things that we can do to support them to become the best version of himself. Granted, he may not be the version of him you want them to be the dream has changed 
And it sounds like in some ways that's part of what you're doing with parents is supporting them work through those emotions of who their relationship with what they want, what they hope for and what's actually the truth. And then for them to have that connection with the, the person that's with them and how they can support them best. So in what ways are you doing that then in the, in the institute with people? It's great. It's something I have said so many times in our administrative meetings when we get together as a team or discussing children and parents. I will say very frequently, I use the phrase, they're not ready. They're, the parents aren't ready to hear this yet. They're not at that place. And it's so important to keep that in mind of just understanding where it's not just about the child, it's about the family as well. It's about the parents because a lot of times the change that needs to occur is going to be, it's going to be driven by the parents. It's not even where the child is making, especially very young children. And so really thinking about if somebody's hearing some big information for the first time about their child, what that's going to be like and helping people be ready to take some steps around that and to see it at least enough to get some momentum, to take some steps towards getting some interventions in place to help their child. I want to circle back to mentioning Mariel Harriman and brain-targeted teaching model. And I mentioned that the very first, she says straight away that if you don't set the emotional climate in the space, then that's the absolute first thing that needs to happen. And for me, it started to tie in with even like resiliency theory and thinking about what people need for their own resilience. And it was a tie to, hey, kids need to be comfortable. They need to feel safe. They need to have a sense of, I believe in you. And then they also need to be able to shift that into, I am safe. I'm okay. I believe in myself. So we set that emotional climate for them to be able to begin to find that in themselves. And I think that that to me is where it, it really comes together. And that's the very, that's the baseline. That's the absolute foundation for what we're doing. And then take that to what are we actually saying? It's the same thing for parents. It's what we all need. And you know, when we are all facing something that we know we're going to have to make a decision or do something with ourselves, we need to know like we believe in it and that we're safe to do it and that we have the ability and that we're going to be able to at least take some steps towards it. I think it'd be really cool to hear an example of some of the work that you're doing as we were communicating leading up to this morning and, and the, the recording of our episode, you'd shared with us an example of the work that you do at kind of multiple levels, both in terms of your role as a coach and then your coach E, I guess, you know, her work with the student and then how the parent work folds into that. It just really captured a lot of the elements, both of the MI part of it, but also thinking in terms of executive functions as opposed to deficits and disorders and, and things like that. Every summer I have the first week in June, we have the executive function certificate training is what it's called. What that is, isn't necessarily teaching professionals that this is what executive functions are. It's professionals who are already working in the field that have familiarity with executive functions that want to learn the approach. And for me, it's again, it gets to the how. How do we do that? How do we do this work? And that's 
where I really bring it together in terms of, I always laugh and say, I bring, I bring my social work into it because I talk about systems theory and being student-centered and or person-centered. Then I also, we, we get into MI and how to use MI when you're doing this work. One of the previous cohort members reached out to me and said, okay, I want some supervision. I have the student that I'm working with. We'll call this person Kate. So Kate called me and said, I really could use some support. I'm working with an eighth grade girl. She seems like she's just really on board and has total buy-in and is doing everything or knows everything that she needs to do, but isn't doing any, it doesn't have any follow through, isn't doing anything that we've discussed. And so I reached out to Kate and we were talking and we'll call her student Susie just to make it easy. She's talking about Susie and she's telling me how just, you know, Susie has identified as having ADHD, which is attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And so with that, many executive function skills can be challenged. And for Susie, it was pretty much across the board. Susie is very distracted easily. And so her attention is affected. Susie will do her work at home, but we'll forget to turn it in. We'll often forget to do long-term projects or just a total miss for Susie because that requires a lot of planning and prioritizing and goal-directed persistence. And so Susie will get started on something because it might be very excited about a project, but won't be able to stick with it. It'll fizzle because having to take things to and from school can be a bit challenging for Susie. And then the other part of that is Kate was feeling frustrated because mom also, the mother of Susie's mom would say all the right things in their executive function coaching sessions and would say, yes, we're going to put all these plans in place. We're going to get the calendars and the schedules and Kate was sharing all of these things that have been done. Like it, it was brilliant. Like, you know, we're whiteboards and electronic calendars and hard copy calendars and, you know, reminders and different things were, were going on. And as Kate was explaining all this to me and she was like, Susie would just sit and be like, yes, that's not, yes, that's great. Yes, that will help me. Yes, I want to do that. And then Susie didn't do any of it when Susie would leave their session. And the whole time as Kate was explaining this to me, all I kept thinking was, is that Kate's not on board with the plan. Kate's not there yet. Kate's at a place where knows it, can see it, but hasn't bought in to the plan. Or Susie hasn't bought into the plan. So Kate and I, when we were talking about it, I said, I just reflected to Kate and I said, so in session, she's agreeing with everything. Sounds like she's a really nice kid. She's a very polite kid. Oh, she's very polite. She's so nice. She's very sweet. And we'll echo back to you all the things that are challenged. Absolutely. She totally gets it. And then I said, so, and you've worked really hard. <laughs> That's what I, when I said to Kate, I said, you've worked really hard at all these plans. You've done so much. And then she, it's, I could tell like her light bulbs went off at that point. And she was like, oh, wait, she's not there yet. And I was like, exactly. She's not there yet. She's not ready to do all these things yet, you need to back it up. You don't have her, yeah, you've, you've focused, but you don't have her, you don't have her in the uh, moving in the change. She's still doing a lot of sustained talk. She's not part of the change process yet. You are, you know, Kate was doing great work. Kate made all kinds of things that was there for change, but Susie was not part of that yet. And then with mom, what was fascinating for me 
so when you think about this, so again, I'm, I don't want to jump around too much because in my world, all of this makes sense. But part of McCloskey's model that I love so much is that he talks about the development of executive function skills and how it starts off with raising awareness. You have to orient people in the beginning to the deficit of the executive function skill. And then the next part is external control, which is really interesting because it's like the external control part is these are the things that the coach or the teacher or the parent will do that will put in place to help support that executive function skill. And then you bridge and you, so the bridging is you step back and a little bit, but you're still prompting, still giving cues, still having the support there, but you're letting the person do more independently. And then the final stage is internalization. And that's McCloskey's model. And uh, when I first heard the model, I'm like, that, that really does make sense for development. However, if you don't layer MI into that, you, you might not get past self-awareness because that's where Susie was at. Susie can tell you everything that Susie's not doing right, but Susie's not getting to the place where Susie's going to fall. So Kate was putting in, Kate was at the planning phase of everything, putting in all these plans and external control, but Susie wasn't a part of that at all. So that's where we go back to MI and how do we get Susie looped in? What is it that Susie really thinks that Susie could do at that point? And so when we really respect that child's autonomy, so that external control can be very misleading because if that kiddo's not buying in at that point, you got to go back to MI and say, what is, where, where does this child really want to start for the work that they're doing? So I see you go back to evocation and you start to say, okay, what do we need to do to help this child decide on where they're going to go and what they're going to be able to do? Yeah, and you described something that I guess most people listening to this episode will recognize, which is there was someone who appears enthusiastic and then there's a plan set out and there's a brick wall. But it's a lovely example, too, of us becoming aware of our writing reflex, which is we see an issue and then our instinct is go, OK, let's, here's the answers. And we have the information we know of, you know, putting these calendars in place will be really good for order. But as you're saying, they're not there yet. The idea of them recognizing the problem doesn't mean they're ready to do something about the problem or they're not ready to do this about the problem. And there's the invitation, I guess, where we are learning to be more patient, to be more curious, to be more sensitive, to be more empathic of the individual and then explore. So if this is the issue, what do you think will solve this? Or So if one of the ideas is a calendar, what does that sound like to you? You know, What do you want to do with that? If we were to put a calendar in place, what would be a good calendar for you? Where would you want it to be? How would you use it? And really get into the smaller details to step, take a step by step. And it reminds me of in a previous episode, we spoke with Deb Solomon, who herself has a diagnosis of ADHD, and she helped us understand. She used the example of going for a shower. She says, you just get up, you grab a towel, you go in, turn the water on and have a shower. He says, but some of the ADHD is, you know, there's multiple micro steps along that way that we need to understand. And it's maybe it's about us understand, you know, what's the step between Thinking a calendar is a good idea and putting a calendar into place. And the best place to find that out is from the individual themselves and to explore that, to be patient, curious, and empathic with them. So often when we think about that, you think about, okay, if you're somebody, let's say that you have ADHD, right? When you hear someone talk about that, like all the multiple steps that are in that place that involves your working memory and your planning and prioritizing these other things, even something like taking a shower, then you're saying someone who doesn't have 
an ADHD brain is coming in and saying, well, do it like this. It's almost like if you've never been exposed to a different language and you're being asked to, okay, I know you've never been exposed to Mandarin, but here's Mandarin and I want you to speak. And that's what it's like. It's asking somebody to speak a completely different language they've never been exposed to before. And it doesn't make sense. And so, of course, they're not going to take a step towards doing it. It doesn't make sense. It's like, it's not intuitive to them. It's not natural. And so if we're going to build something intrinsic and help them, if you want to move them from that self-awareness to internalization, then we need to meet them where they're at so that they can get there. Part of that would be maybe working within the way they do things at first. And it might be uncomfortable to you as a coach or as a teacher or anyone else working with that person because for you, you see it, you see, oh, this is the way, but your brain is already there. Your brain is a brain that does that naturally. And so we have to be able to step outside of our own experience and say, okay, let's see what their brain might give them. That is where you're going to build some momentum for them to maybe move towards getting to a different system. But again, it might be a system you've not even imagined. You know, what they come up with, what they're able to do might be a great system that works for them, but it might not be something you would ever do. Again, that's beautiful, right? Because that's really where it's total self-determination. You know, they're owning it completely. It's theirs. That's part of when I work with other professionals on how to do this work. That's what I, I talk about all the time. So it's like whatever model you've looked at for executive skills, there's so many of them. It's not the tool necessarily. It's the person, you know, you want to get into working with that individual, that student, that young adult, that adult even that is working on this, find out what that person is bringing to the experience and start with that. And then you'll figure out which tool is going to work best for that person. I imagine there's very much a parallel process when working with parents. And you've referenced already some of the work that you do with parents. And I don't remember if the Susie story that you shared with us included work with Susie's parent or parents, but maybe you could kind of, if there was a parent part of that story, if you could share that with us, if not, maybe you can kind of extrapolate from your past work with parents. Yeah, Kate, the coach that spoke with me, spoke about the mom who just wasn't able to follow through. I didn't get into that a whole lot with Kate, but I did encourage Kate to go back and explore that with mom a little bit. And what I think was, you know, I think what happens is, at least my experience has been that parents get really worn out too. And sometimes parents have similar challenges. So it could be mom having something similar. And so it's not very intuitive to mom. Like, my, you know, mom can intellectualize and say, oh, yes, these calendars make sense. And this is what you want to do. But if mom also has some of these EF challenges, then it might be a little tougher mom to follow through with. And we might be putting a whole system in place that the family just isn't going to be able to align with. And then it's futile. And so if you want parent support, it's really getting into their world as well. And what's going to be, what can they do? What are they willing to do? What do they want to do? And, you know, in their world, maybe even they just don't even see it the same as the teachers. There's this big problem that's going on. And maybe even from the parent's standpoint, and I run into that even here at my school, that parents, you know, at their homes, things are great. And they don't want to go down the path of 
this because in their world it creates conflict or it's uncomfortable and you know we we're happy and we don't want to have conflict in our home so as soon as i start talking about these calendars and binders and and systems it's my child gets upset and i don't want to have that conflict in my home and um and i'm going to step back and i'm going to let the teachers do that because that's their job not mine and so i run into all different scenarios around that it could be a parent's own issues around what they might be challenged by. It could be their own sense of competency of being able to do it. Could be that they don't want to. It could be that again, like they might not have a connection to it or know how, or they might not even have the time. It just might not be feasible. You know, we ask a lot of parents and parents are already doing a lot and it might not be feasible. And that is always, I always think that's always interesting when people jump right to the planning phase of all of this type of work, because it's brilliant from the outside, because the same thing would happen in my own home, right? I have an autistic child and and people would have all these brilliant ideas for me. And I would be like, okay, wait, I'm working all day long. And then I go home and then I'm gonna do this whole big job again with this this guy. And, And what I wanted to say is it's work for me to get this kid to eat because of his sensory problems. So my priority at home isn't gonna be whether or not he's, shaping his letters and, and, you know, shaving cream on the counter, it's going to be to get some nutrition in him because he's resisted to eating because of the sensory problems he's having with autism. So when we think about what parents are going through and we can join with parents and use MI to really join with parents, then we're actually going to support that whole family system and that, that, that kid is part of to help this whole process move forward. And kids and parents aren't always that we always assume kids and parents are on the same page too, which is a mistake. And we assume if there are two parents in the home, that both parents are on the same page. We can't do that either. We need to get to know each individual, where is everybody and what what does each individual need? And it could be that maybe mom needs to take a breather. You know, it could be mom's overwhelmed and mom needs some support with that. You as a EF coach might be the one to say, you know what, I hear you. And this has been really hard. And every time I bring up a plan or a calendar, you want to say to me, you know, this is great and I'll do it, but I get it. You're worn out and this is really hard for you. Maybe we need to rethink this and let's think of something else that might work better for you. You know, I'm wondering if you could tell me more about what this is like for you at home. Taking that step back and asking someone to do that could actually be the step towards change that a person is needing rather than continuing to put your plan in place. Yeah. And in our last episode, we spoke with Paul Earnshaw and he talked about social empathy. And it sounds like that's part of what you're describing there is that we step back and take into account what's going on in this person's life. What's their family circumstances? What's their social circumstances? And how is that impacting on just keeping the household together? Never mind doing some of this really specialized focus work on the child's learning or development. So it's a, again, it's, a, it's an invitation for us as practitioners, you know, to take our time to see if we can see the big picture while we understand the challenges of the individual in the micro world that we spend most of our time in. And it sounds like from what you're describing for me is, is that the more we as practitioners can understand the executive function, it'll support us become a bit more patient, a bit more compassionate, a bit more willing to create space where we can maintain our curiosity to understand the individual, which is consistent with what our effort to be helpful. But it's to recognize, you know, there's a big space here. The more you understand it, 
the more you'll be able to understand the assets of this individual, this mother, this child, this family, this community, and then invite them using evocation to say, what ideas have you got to move it towards this place where mm-hmm. they can function in a different way or they can be supportive in a different way? That it's not just, we, we want you to get there and here's, there's a bus will pick you up on Thursday and take you there. It's what's the best way for you to get there? Well, but taking into account your lifestyle and circumstances, what other ways can this be done and that would work best for you? Exactly. And the other thing is that executive functions develop throughout our lifetime. It's a, and it's at a glacial pace. So it's like, again, slowing this whole thing down. It's a reason why I also layered in systems theory into the training that I do because it varies in, co- in different contexts, right? So it's just one of my favorite things to remind parents and and teachers is that you know we're taking our brain everywhere we go and how we're interacting in that space is going to is going to change and is going to be different depending on you know what we're connecting to in that experience because I'll hear all the time well they do great when they're at soccer or they're doing fine when they're in science but then they go to language arts and they're a different kid I'm like well again it's that person is unique to their experiences that they're having. So it's always an interaction of the person in that environment and their executive function skills that they're bringing into that space is going to be different. And now there's some things that can be pervasive. We know that, but sometimes it isn't. Sometimes it's going to be very different for that person in different contexts. And they might be different in different relationships that they have. And again, it just is supporting that autonomy and, and appreciation for, you know, I was, we're, they're human beings. <laughs> they're not projects. They're human beings. And uh, we all are. And so we're taking our strengths and challenges everywhere we go. And it's going to change. It's a moving target. I think you may already be getting into this, my next question here, and taking humans as we all are, as, you know, developing imperfect creatures of, you know, with different styles and, and, and the like. And just wondering, you know, because we were talking about how MI fits when working explicitly in the development and support of a young person's executive function skills and how it fits in that way. And we're also thinking of it from the standpoint of just a, an MI practitioner of any kind, be it physician, nurse, therapist, probation officer, whatever it might be. And for our listeners who don't explicitly work in educational settings and maybe learning about executive functions more or less for the first time with this episode, perhaps, like what could a better understanding of the executive functions or having a sense of what that might mean, how would that help just a general MI practitioner in any field? What what would you say there? What I have appreciated the most about learning more about executive function skills. And I started to get into this world more because of my child. I did a whole that that was part of my motivation for the mind, brain and teaching program that I did. I want to know the most I can about this child's brain. I want to understand how my, because my child's brain is different than mine. And I want to learn about that. I want to know what I can do with that. And so as I did that, I kept thinking about how, when we can look at things through an executive function lens, we get away from labels in a natural way. We get away from using words like unmotivated or, you know, they're just, I used the word scattered earlier. They're apathetic. They don't care. I mean, because when we can look at it of, of identifying what skill is there, what is the skill? What is, what is the skill that we could actually see 
and maybe have an impact on. And it might not be. So for my son's case, there are some skills that are challenged just because of the autistic brain. Like, so we know that it's very common for an autistic brain to have problems with cognitive flexibility. Dr. Shaw was another one of uh, my professors at Hopkins that I loved how she would uh, describe this. And she talked about it in terms of affordances. You know, we all have affordances that we bring to our world. And what would he bring to that? Like what was available to him? Part of that is, you know, his sensory needs were so high that it would create again, rigidity. And so for me, it's like understanding that then I don't label that anymore as he's being difficult or he's being defiant. So you hear these labels in behavior that I think take us out of being able to really understand a person's natural experience. And it's just, okay. So it might not be, the natural experience might not be comfortable for everybody, but there's maybe if we can step back and, and see it as, okay, what are the skills that are there that might need to be supported? And it could be, are we going to help him with comp- compensatory strategies? Or are we going to start teaching some things more explicitly to build and strengthen that skill? So if you stick with cognitive flexibility, helping him even be aware that this is a moment where he might be stuck and not able to move forward and that it's uncomfortable for him. And it started with just at home with my own child with talking about, I know this is hard. This seems hard for you. Is this hard for you? And it was, you know, and I could, I mean, his whole body would tighten up. You could see, I mean, when it wasn't just cognitive, it wasn't just, you know, being rigid cognitively. It was just like his whole autonomic state would just be right there. You when you think about that, I mean, when we're asking people to do something, that is uncomfortable for them or it triggers that autonomic state. So then we're wanting them, you're asking them, well, I need you to be more flexible. And if we're not approaching that in a way where it's again, going back to that emotional climate and creating a safe space to do that and meeting somebody where they're at, we're actually reinforcing more of the thing that we're not wanting. And so we want flexibility then we need to meet them in a place where it's safe for them to be flexible. And I think that that's probably one of the most important things that I think about in terms of understanding all of this and bringing it together is recognizing that people might not always naturally, we might not always naturally be in that space with someone, but can we get away from labeling what is there for someone and and really look at it in terms of what do people need? And what are the skills that are there that we can help them see? And think about the hope that's generated in kids. You think kids that have these challenges or even young adults, even when you talk to adults, even, you know, the, all the things that they endured, you know, because kids who are people who are challenged with the executive function skills, they're seen as problems sometimes and um, they're in trouble a lot. And for me, it's like, can we step away from, you know, making them be in trouble and say, okay, rather than getting you in trouble, Let's see what we can do to help you. What can we do to support you? Because it doesn't seem like you know what to do at this moment. Your brain might not be giving you that opportunity to make that choice. So how can I help you develop the skill to make that choice differently? 
Yeah, and it throws it right back to us as practitioners to recognise that whatever it is we want this person to be able to do, one of the best and perhaps only ways to help them do it is for us to do it first. So if we want this young person to be flexible, they have to experience our flexibility. If we want someone to believe in themselves, they have to experience us believing in them for them to learn it for themselves. Let us show them the very thing that we're trying to teach them so that they can become like us, which is as functional as possible as we can be within the resources we have available to ourselves. Right. And I go back to like even thinking about like, so when I go back to thinking about the work I did with adolescents in an intensive outpatient program, and I think about where those kids were at and all the things that they brought into that group setting. And, you know, it's to think about them in terms of executive function skills. So emotional regulation would be in that. And again, we're reducing like our idea of executive function skills down to help explain this in a way that everyone can understand it. So probably for someone like George McCloskey hearing me say that, he would probably be like, oh, there's so much more to it than that. And I, I would agree probably there is. But when we think about just emotional regulation or even what they may have experienced in terms of trauma, right? Kids having so much trauma work there, their needs. And so we want them to be able to handle all that or work through all that. And then, you know, it's interfering with their learning or the choices that they're making with their peers or other things. It's like, okay, this is what we're really, we're helping them develop these skills to skills that might have been derailed, even in terms of their, when we think about neurodevelopment and the wiring that's being built, you know, we know that the impact those things can have on the brain. So, okay, let's go back and do some basic skill work that they may have missed really early on that could be interfering with what they're trying to accomplish, even in their sobriety or just in their ability to work through substance use issues. So I just think it, for me, it all makes natural sense because all my world's colliding at one time in my brain. Yeah, no, and we appreciate you sharing it all. It certainly brings to life the work of someone who interacts with EF, thinks in EF terms, and but also weaves in the MI pieces to it as well. As we begin to wrap up here, we like to ask our guests, what is something that you have coming up for you in the not too distant future, or perhaps even in the present that is work-related or maybe has nothing to do with work? What's something catching your attention here? (laughs) Work-related, we have our week here at the Cliff Valley Institute starting June 4th. So June 4th, 5th, 6th, and 7th is our executive function certificate training. So if anyone would be interested in joining us for that, we have visitors from all over that will join us for that training. It's a great training. You're welcome. You can find that at the cliffvalleyinstitute.org. And also we're happy to welcome Dr. Sebastian Kaplan to that as well for two days on June 8th and 9th for an advanced motivational interviewing workshop. And I encourage anyone working with children, adolescents, young adults in the educational world to join us in that because it's a real focus on using motivational interviewing in education and academic settings. And um, and we're always excited to have you join us for that. And that is uh, June 8th and 9th this year. Right. Well, it's always exciting for me to come down to Atlanta and to work with. And really, I see it as a co-training with you, Tamara, since you bring so much to it as well. So thank you. Alongside of that. And again, so people that it sounds like that's an in-person training. So that if it's okay. So and they can get that and we'll include that in the blurb for the website. For, for people to contact you. And just on that question about contact, if people have questions or concerns or ideas or just want to find out more about EF and they wanted to reach out to 
Tamara, would that be okay? And if they were, how would they do that? Absolutely. I uh, would love for people to reach out and contact me. I always love meeting new people. You can find me at T Hamilton at cliffvalley.org. That's my email. And I would love to hear from people. And you can also find me through the Cliff Valley Institute website. And again, that's just cliffvalleyinstitute.org. Lovely. And just a reminder, if people are looking to contact us on Twitter, it's at Change Talking to contact or connect directly with Seb. It's S-G-K-F-R-O-M-N-C, S-G-K from N-C. Myself, it's at Glenn Hines. Our Instagram page is Talking to Change Podcast. Facebook is Talking to Change. And our email address for suggestions or information it's podcast at glenhines.com. Tamara, we greatly appreciate this. This has been really wonderful. And a nice add-on to our the episode that Glenn mentioned a couple of episodes ago on neurodivergence. So we're very fortunate to have had you join us, particularly this time of year and sitting alongside some of our other programming. So thank you again. Uh, this is wonderful. And I look forward to seeing you in June pretty soon here. Absolutely. This was my pleasure. Thank you so much. I loved being able to talk about EF and MI and all the great things that we can do when we bring it all together. So thank you so much for asking me to join you. Thanks, Tom. It was thank you, Glenn. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thanks, everybody.